If you'd like to turn in your uh, church Bibles uh, to the book of Hebrews, um, we're going to read um, from Hebrews 1, uh, verse 5, to uh, chapter 2, uh, verse 4. You can find that on page uh, 1201 in your church Bibles, 1201 in your church Bibles, if you have it. And um, if you don't have one, but you'd like to have one, there are some at the back, don't be shy. You know, I'm not going to tell you off for going out and grabbing one. I'd rather you have the, the Word of God with you, so you can read it. And if you get slightly lost, keep reading it, because it's God's Word. <laughs> but do try and stick uh, with what we're going to say today. Um, I'm just going to pray one more time, just before I start um, reading as well. Um, if you'd like to pray with me. Dear Father God, we thank you so much for your Word. We thank you that it is powerful and life-changing. It is the source of life. We thank you that it has within it the, the secrets of salvation and that you have revealed them to us in Jesus. Just Father God, I pray uh, tonight you'd help me to, to have a focused and clear mind, uh, to speak the words you want said tonight. I pray that I would be helpful and not a hindrance to the people here. I pray you'd help me to uh, speak words of power and truth and help us all, I pray, to be hearing from you tonight, to be uh, keen hearers of the word, who as a result of hearing it will go out changed as we try to seek to become more in your likeness, Father God. And we need help for that, Lord. We just pray so much. And Father, I just pray you forgive me for uh, the mistakes I make in my life, and I pray you just uh, purify me now and help me to speak your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's just read this together. Some great words uh, from the book of Hebrews. Uh, We're going to start at Hebrews um, chapter 1, verse 5, and just read to chapter 2, verse 4. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. But about the son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, in the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you remain the same and your years will never end. So which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who inherit salvation? We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment... How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And that's the word of God. We're going to touch on the the second part of the passage as well tonight, the bit that Neil uh, read from um, as we go through. But I thought I'd start with that because my title that was given to me was Jesus Greater Than the Angels. And it's the sort of title that makes me look forward to the day where in September I can go and study God's word more. Um, There's a slight sense of the blind leading the partially sighted tonight. Um, So hopefully... uh, what I say will be helpful to you. I'm going to give you a little bit of background as we kind of dive straight in. Um, 
the Hebrews that are writing, that are being written to here, um, in one sense, are kind of second-generation Christians. You, you, you get a glimpse of that as he says, you know, we heard it from the Lord, which was conferred to us. We heard that as we read. There's a sense of them being second-generation Christians. And because of that, there's also a sense, and I don't know if you've ever thought this through, you know, Christianity worships the same God of Judaism. You know, we recognize Jesus in a different way, but it's the same God. And the Christians, in many ways, were seen as a bit of a, a kind of a sect, just like a separate group. And you may be saying, well, well, so what? I guess the really important thing to realize about Judaism was it wasn't like the kind of Christianity we follow, which is kind of neatly packaged on a Sunday and a Thursday night at kind of quarter to eight. Um, it was all-encompassing. You know, Judaism told you the clothes to wear, the people to meet with, uh, the way you should eat, the food you should eat, the way you should go to the temple, the way you should sacrifice. Everything was encompassed in Judaism. It told you about your family line. It told you of your history. It told you that you were a people that God had chosen out. And for second generation Christians, I guess it was pretty hard to actually escape from that. And if you're surrounded by this really big, powerful force that says we are God's chosen nation, what are you doing? What are you doing worshipping this carpenter from Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? What are you doing, you know, doing these new things when we have a religion that, 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 that has gone back into the beginning of time? There would have been, I think, a real challenge to kind of really stick with, with this new way. And we get a sense as this writer starts to write that he's going to answer some of the doubts and questions come in. You know, these Christians would have struggled not being part of the kind of daily Jewish life. You know, the, the kind of the way that selling was done, the way the meetings were done, the kind of the joyfulness of the, the thing being found together. They would have struggled with that. You know, they, they left a religion that had the temple there before them. Especially in like Jerusalem, you know, they could see this visible presence of God's glory, God's presence among his people. A sign of, do you remember, God's people taken out to, to, to actually capture this land in God's power. And God asserting his authority in the place saying, this is where I will dwell with my people. They will be my people and they will, I will be their God. You know, imagine the struggle when they're being told now, actually, in Christianity, the temple is not quite as important because our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit and Jesus fulfilled the ultimate sacrifice anyway. Imagine the struggle. Are you trying to get, kind of get this idea? They're struggling with, well, how can we be distinctive when this is all-encompassing? You think about that, just think about Judaism for a minute, the Old Testament that we, we read and love as well. Yeah, the wonders that, that are described there, angels appearing, giving messages to people. Yeah, battles won by angelic hosts coming down with, with, with swords, God fighting on behalf. And the Christians are seen to be leaving this? Are they mad? Why are you leaving behind such history? Why are you leaving behind such glory? Why are you worshipping a man rejected by our leaders? Why would you do that? Why would you worship a man who, as the Bible says, cursed is a man hung on a tree to die? You're worshipping a cursed man? Why would you do that? A criminal killed on a cursed tree. These Christians worship, surrounded by their history, surrounded by their family who maybe aren't yet Christians, saying, come back. Do you remember we have a God who brought us out of Egypt? Come back. How tempting to drift back into the old way, the comfortable way. The way where you have that history. You know, to be blunt, the Christian history at that point was that, that Jesus came for three years. He teached, taught, did wonders and miracles. He was crucified to die and then the Christians claim he came back to life again. But he doesn't seem to be around at the moment for second generation Christians. And yeah, we hear stories of the Holy Spirit doing powerful things, but... 
It's pretty tough. Here's the visible presence of the tech collider. How tempting it is to drift back. And it got me thinking because in one sense we are very unlike them. We don't have maybe a history we can look back on in such a strong sense. As Christians we can look back to our Christian history. But our faith is not quite so all-encompassing, is it? I don't think you got up this morning and thought, right, I better put some tassels on because the word of God tells me to put some tassels on. I better put a blue one in there too. You didn't know that the Bible said that, but it does. You didn't probably wake up this morning and think, I'll have some bacon for breakfast and then think, oh, does that work out with my food, Lord? You don't do that, do you? No? No. You know, our faith doesn't seem to be quite as all-encompassing, maybe, as theirs was. And I'm, I'm going to just touch on two main doubts, and, and I'm being very simplistic here, but I want to try and touch on two main doubts, uh, which this passage covers. Okay? So, I mean, how are we like them? Well, I guess, in one sense, we have come from a, a kind of a kingdom where it used to be all-encompassing, just it was living for self, and now we're in a new kingdom. And we may think to ourselves, well, actually, is this Christianity thing worth it? You know, is this Christianity thing, Christianity thing really worth it? Because actually, sometimes it seems a bit easier without the responsibilities of going to church, without the pressure they put on me to come and be a Sunday school teacher and, and do all this stuff. You know, it should be easier if I could lie in on a Sunday morning. I have a lot of revision at the moment. You know, we get these doubts to drift back into our old way. How are we like them? I think quite often we, we, we lose the sight of the greatness of Jesus. And, and what the passage in Hebrews is all about is saying, guys, if you're starting to doubt, if you're starting to drift, get your focus on Jesus absolutely spot on. Because he is greater than anything. And if he's greater than anything, there is nothing that should come before him. So two main passages, which we've got kind of Hebrews 1, which talks about how Jesus is greater than angels. Uh, chapter 2 goes on to talk about how Jesus becomes like us. And then it finishes with this idea of Jesus being a greater high priest, someone that's greater than the high priest at the temple to bring you back to God. Two areas of doubt. Question number one, imagine you're a Hebrew and you're kind of struggling with this second generation Christian thing. It's like you've grown up in a Christian home your whole life. Your parents drummed it into you when you were a kid and you're kind of finding it a bit dull now. Question number one, well, Judaism has angels and wonders in its past. Why would I want to leave it? Judaism has angels and wonders all the way through its story. Why would I want to leave it? And Judaism, secondly, rejects Jesus as just a simple cursed man. Why would I want to follow him? Two main doubts that, in one sense, I think this writer is seeking to address. The Hebrews are saying, do you know what? It looks better back there. And he's trying to say, well, hang on a sec. Hang on a sec. So let's talk about this together. Angels, don't drift, don't drift. Um, just so you know, we're not going to go through the whole of the passage. I'm going to try and pull it into just a small section, which is the beginning of, of Hebrews chapter 2, uh, where it says, we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels is binding, and so on, and so on. Now, I want to do a bit of a trick uh, with you, if you're able. And some people from Cornerstone will have seen me do this before, so please don't tell. Um, it does require a, a small physical action on your part. There is a point to this. Okay, so here's what I need you to do. If you could just stand up very quickly. I know you don't normally do that during a sermon. Don't lose your place in the Bible. Okay, if you, if you do know how to do this, please don't tell. Okay, here's what I need you to do. I need you to put your hands out, like so. And turn your thumbs upwards. I've lost some of you already. That's not, that's not okay, Turn it downwards. Okay, so you turn it down like that. Cross your hands. Okay, and grab hold of fingers. And make sure your thumbs are pointing down. Okay, can you just check your neighbour to make sure that what they're doing is right? Have you got that? Here's what I want you to do. Very simply, I just want you to turn your arms like that. 
What's wrong with you? Who, who couldn't do it? Who couldn't do it? Shame on you. It's not hard. What, what? No? Here's the problem. Okay, at the start, I said, look at my hands. And you did. I did a couple of movements. Some of you thought, this is going nowhere. It's one of his kids' talks again. <laughs> I got you to check your neighbour's hands. And while I did that, I very cunningly swapped my arm around. You slipped. You drifted from looking at the hands I told you to look at. You drifted. What happened? Did you get, lose concentration? And so when I turn it, I can turn it. I just need to have a sit down. Have a sit down. Try it yourself at home. Now here's really, really important. Because if, and I know that I've been a bit cheeky and deceived you, but this is the context of this. We must pay careful attention to what we have heard so we do not drift away. The word drift away comes from um, a picture of a boat that's in a mooring, okay? The seas are calm, and someone forgot to tie the boat to the bank. When the seas kind of kick up a bit, the boat drifts away because it's not tied on, it's not focused on its mooring point. That's what the word drift away means. In that rather silly thing, I told you to focus on my hands at the start, you, you kind of did, but then you very quickly got distracted. In one sense, the writer to Hebrews is saying, this is your instruction tonight. If you're starting to think, well, actually, my old life was better, you know, I was promised... Christianity was going to be good for me, and my life seems to have been harder since then, and you want to drift back. I'm going to try and say to you, get, get, get back again, moor yourself onto Jesus. We must pay careful attention, therefore, to what we've heard so we don't drift away. I've got a question for you. How great do you consider Jesus to be, and how does he impact you in your daily life? How great do you think Jesus to be, and how does he impact you in your daily life? Just have a little think for ten seconds think today? How has he impacted you apart from coming to church? doesn't count. How great do you consider it to be? Um, when I was dating Claire, I thought she was pretty great. And um, I would do things like compose songs for her. Um, and any of you who have heard me sing can realise that wasn't a good plan. Um, because she, I'm a bit like one of those people on Pop Idol that think they can do it, but they can't. And I would sit there and I'd write for hours trying to write words that rhymed with Claire that wasn't hair. Because over and over again, I was like, Claire, I love your hair, your skin is fair, and your hair is nice. Um, and I, I know it's silly, but I, would, I couldn't stop. I would sit there thinking about Claire and how great she was. I'd, I'd be on rock climbing sessions, like lifting kids up the rope, like that, just thinking how great Claire was. And then the kid would be like, excuse me, I'm scared. And I'd have got them right to the top and held them there for a bit. You know... <laughs> It's silly. Claire became my everything. And then there was a problem. Because I would start to skip church a little bit just to try and compose songs for Claire. You know, I'd, I'd try and call her. And then if the, the call went on a bit long, you know, it was an excuse. Yeah, Claire became my everything. And that was a problem. And then when we were dating, I really wanted to kiss Claire a lot. A lot. And, and Claire became my everything. And I wanted to kiss her a lot. And God said not to kiss like that. And I was like, Claire is my everything. And that wasn't good. Because the minute we put anything above God, the minute we put anything above how great Jesus is, we are drifting into trouble. For this answers question of, you know, why would I leave Judaism when it had all these wonders and angels and signs? The writer is very, very clear here. Why would you want to go back to that when we have Jesus? 
Why would you drift back to that when we have now the final word, the ultimate salvation, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, come to earth as a man, choosing to give up glory and power on our behalf, choosing to become human like us in our messed up world. Why would you drift back to when you didn't have that? Why would you drift back to a point where you don't have a Messiah who can save you? Wake up, my Hebrew friends, you are drifting away. And the whole of Hebrews, is this chapter 1, is about telling you why would you want to go and worship angels, basically, and put them above Jesus, when Jesus is by far greater. It's really clever, though, how he does it. He doesn't just say, guys, you heard what we've told you. Jesus rose again. That's why he's greater. He doesn't just say, we told you about the miracles. How does he argue with people that attempted to go back to Judaism? Can you see? That's a question for you in your pairs. How does the writer of Hebrews argue to bring them back to Jesus because these people are worrying and struggling back to Judaism? Can you see? Just in, in Hebrews chapter 1. Just, just look at your Bibles because it's good to do it once during a sermon. Um, yeah. So in Hebrews 1, how does the writer argue with some people that attempted to go back to Judaism and ignore their saviour? How does he do it? Can you see? Any ideas? This is the... The bit where we can do repartee. Any ideas? How does he do it in, in Hebrews chapter 1? I'll give you a little clue. The bits you never normally read at the very bottom of the page give you a very small clue at this point. Quotes the Old Testament! He says... Why would you go back? Because the Judaistic writings tell you about Jesus and tell you that he is far greater than the angels anyway. Why would you go back when their own writings tell you he is not just an angel, as some of the Judaistic people were like, well, he might be a messenger from God, in their kind of nicely trying to bring them back way. Read some of the things. God's, you know, verse 5, Hebrews 1. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father? From where? Verse 8, Psalm 2, verse 7. A writing from Judaism. The whole of Hebrews 1, he uses their writings to say, this Jesus is the son of God who is in eternal relationship with God, whose life will never end. His love is matchless. One day the world will come to a close, but this Jesus was there at the beginning and he'll be there at the end. Why would you go back to something which doesn't have Jesus in it? Because if we have an eternal God, we have an eternal salvation. And if we have an eternal salvation, that's something I want to be a part of, yes? Why would you go back? Your own writings tell you not to. Hebrews chapter 1, in a nutshell. And if you want to go home, I'm not going to do it. You can look at all those little passages. And... There is another whole sermon about why does he use those ones? Because each builds on the next. The first one says, here's my son. The second one builds and says, here's my eternal son. We're in eternal relationship. It builds through and builds through and builds through and says, these angels, what does it say at the end of that passage? Have a look, verse 14. To get the correct context, why don't you stray back? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Are angels the source of salvation? No. Are angels deserving of worship? No. Everywhere in the Bible where people worship angels, the angels say, hang on a sec, I'm just the messenger. In Revelation, at the very end of the Bible, this angel appears that is ultimately glorious. And John says, I wanted to worship the angel and fall down before him. And the angel says, no. Worship God 
alone? Why would you go back to something that doesn't have Jesus in? If you're tempted by your old way of life, your old way of sin, a life where you were king, why would you go back to that? In biblical words, it's like a dog going back to vomit. Why would you do it? When we have a glorious saviour who is greater than the angels because he is God's son, the precious one. I'm not meaning to shout at you, but do you get what I'm trying to say? Hebrews 1, using their own writings, don't go back that way. It is clever though because he also says, just if you look at Hebrews 2, Hebrews 2 verse 3. How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders and various miracles and the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. If you do have people like um, current day Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses call Jesus an angel or they, they deny him kind of being God and you're always like, I really wish I knew my Bible better. I really wish I could show them that Jesus was God. Which passage are you going to turn to? Any ideas? Shout it loud. Why? Why? What does it do? It proves Jesus is God, God's son. It proves it using passages they'll have as well. For to which of the angels did God ever say? Is a very, very important say. A very, very important say. Judaism tells us that Jesus is greater than the angels. Their own writings do it. Why would you go back? Hebrews 1, 5 to 14 is quote upon quote upon quote showing Jesus is the Messiah, that he's God's son, a returning king, and much, much more. Don't drift. And don't get distracted by angels and that kind of stuff. We often do, you know, once we get a bit bored with Jesus, we're like, ooh, this person can channel angels. This person has dreams about angels. Let's keep fixed on the mooring post that is Jesus because we don't want to drift. Jesus is glorious. Have you got that bit? You're just nodding now. Just good. Don't drift. The second part, which I want to focus on, from, and I'm going to give you a bit of a heading. In, in, um, let me just get the bit. In, in verse 2, so Hebrews 2, verse 2, we're going to have this as our heading for the next bit. Because the second question was, why would I want to come and worship this Jesus when he was cursed? You know, in our history, we have great heroes of the faith. We're still waiting for the Messiah. But, but why would I want this Jesus? You know, surely the fact that he was cursed on the cross, that kind of brings a bit of doubt to me. The author, now, I'm not going to go into big kind of on this because we've got another whole sermon about how Jesus is our high priest. But what the writer's about to say is that actually it is in his suffering on the cross that his true glory is shown. That rather than being a cause for embarrassment, or worry in faith that we serve this, this carpenter from Nazareth, that it's on the cross as he hung to die, taking our sin, that that's where his true glory is revealed. And why would you drift away because you're embarrassed about the cross, when actually the cross itself is the fact, the statement that, that everything is done? Pop quiz, what, what was Jesus' kind of final words on the cross? It's finished, it's finished, it's finished. The work is done at that point. The end time hasn't come yet, and we get a glimpse of that, that, that Jesus is at the right hand of God. He's waiting. A time will come when everything will be made right. But the ultimate work of kind of salvation is finished. Don't drift a cursed, cursed man. So this passage says, you know, if the angels spoke a message, and this is talking about the law. This is when the law showed that we're far from God, that we've sinned and messed up. And it says this, if every violation and disobedience received a just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? The things the Jews had were the law. 
the law. God's word spoken on a mountain, accompanied by kind of a light and sound show of thunder and lights and angels, saying, here is God's standard and here are the consequences if you don't keep it. Here's sacrifice that shows you that there is a way back to God, but here is the law. And the problem is that when we stack up ourselves against the law, what happens? What happens? We don't come out so good, do we? No, I mean, I kind of read through number one and think, oh no, <laughs> I've got nine more to go. We, we don't tend to stack up. And, and he's saying, well, you know, why would you go back to something that doesn't offer you salvation? Here's a second question. I asked you how important Jesus is. How important is salvation to you and how does it impact you? Okay, 30 seconds. How important is salvation to you and how does it impact you? And what I mean by salvation is Jesus dying on a cross. How important is that? Just think, be realistic with yourself. Because you've probably heard it a billion times from here and in Sunday school. But how important is it to you? Okay, Claire. Claire was great and thankfully she was so great that she stopped me kissing her in the way I wasn't supposed to. And um, we decided to get married so I could kiss her in the way that I was supposed to. And um, It makes sense. I'm not embarrassed. It's a biblical thing. So anyway, I had the plan. Um, I wanted to get engaged to Claire because that's what you have to do to get married little tip for some of you. Um, <laughs> I asked Claire's dad. Um, we went round to their house for just an odd weekend and we were doing the washing up. I've told you this before. And um, I was being unnormally quiet and uh, Andrew was like, Paddy, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, because I'm still quite scared of him. And he went, is there anything you want to ask me? Because he's a fairly bright guy. <laughs> you know, he'd kind of seen it coming. Um, you know, I'd been holding Argos open at the ring section. Mmm, cheap. Um, and, he, and I was like, maybe. And he goes, Paddy, what would you like to ask? And I said, um, can I have your daughter? And he was like, now? And I said, no, we're married. And he goes, ah, oh, good, good. And he said, yes. And I said, don't tell Claire. And he goes, yeah, I've done this before, don't worry. He has another daughter. So the next week, <laughs> the next week, I took Claire to the Isle of Wight. I took Claire, there's a point, bear with me. Took Claire to the Isle of Wight. And, um, we had a lovely meal, which I couldn't eat, which is very rare, as you can probably tell. And Claire was like, Paddy, is everything okay? Because she's quite bright as well. And I was like, yes. And she said, why have you come to the Isle of Wight? And I said, because I like it over here. <laughs> anyway, after lunch, we walk across the field. You've heard this before. She complained the whole way that the field was muddy. Now, that puts you off the romantic mood when your girlfriend's behind you going, where did you bring me to this field? And I've got a rucksack on with champagne and rings. And I sit her on a, a wooden, uh, not a wooden, a, a stone wall and um, asked her to marry me. And um, as you know, I lifted up the, the box with the ring and she said, well, let's see it then. That was her answer. I said, will you marry me? Let's see the ring. Wise. <laughs> Wise. Wish I hadn't bought it from Argos then. And then, and, then, and then we did the most amazing thing. And here's where the point comes in. I asked you, how important is your salvation? Can you guess what we did next? What do we do next after I've got engaged to my girlfriend, who's now my fiancée? What, what would you do? What would you do? Shout loud. You're, you're on the right lines? I would pray. Oh, no, I wouldn't. I know I'm a pastor, but that came much later when I was like, is this the right thing, God? I probably should have checked before I asked her. Um, I told everyone. I told the landlord at the pub. I told the man walking on the road. We got to a little phone box on the other white. This was before mobile phones. And um, phoned everyone we could think of to tell them. Because this was a great thing, isn't it? I was saved from a life of being doomed to singleness. I was very anxious about that from about the age of 12. 
you know, all my worries I built up within me that no one would ever want to marry me had gone. And I told everyone, how important is your salvation to you? Because if it's great news, and if it has changed the course of your life from this point on, why don't we go and tell the landlord at the pub or the person down the road? Because if I can shout aloud about a relationship which, to be a bit scientific, is going to come to an end one day, why wouldn't I want to go and tell people about a relationship I have that lasts into eternity? And which, best of all, they can join in with. Because, I don't know about you, I don't want to invite anyone else into my marriage. Claire's enough by herself. But with faith, we can invite others in. We can have them kind of share how important is your faith and salvation to you. Because if Jesus is great and you tell people about him, and your salvation is greater and you tell people about that, you know, just, just kind of bear with it. And, and Hebrews, you know, Hebrews, I'm not going to go into much of it, but there's some great passages, just two little bits I'm going to touch on. Because what the Bible says is that a cursed man brings you freedom, and so don't be ashamed. A cursed man brings freedom, so don't be ashamed. And I'm not going to add anything to these words. As I said before, often I think I get in the way. Hebrews 2, verse 9. Just look at this. We're going to read two bits, and I'm not going to say anything, which is a slight lie. I'll say something, but um, we'll read this together. Hebrews 2, 9 to 11. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. Now, you might be thinking, well, hang on a sec. You just told me Jesus was greater than the angels. <gasps> Contradiction. No. Angels are just spirit. Jesus was physical flesh and spirit too, and gave up his glory. So he's described as a little lower than the angels. I know that's probably confused you, but at least I've said it. Made a little lower than the angels. Now, keep reading on. Now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Do you know who the them are? Us. We are called brothers of Christ because the precise reason Jesus came from heaven, set aside his glory to become a man. And that is a mind-blowing thing I'm not going to be able to explain to you. How can you have someone fully human and fully God? Well, God did it. And if God's all-powerful, nothing's beyond his reach, yeah? Keep it that simple if you like. But this is why, because by tasting death, he might taste death for everyone. Our glory is in Jesus' cross. And that's why we should glory in our salvation and not be ashamed of the fact we have a carpenter from Nazareth born in a humble kind of story where they're kind of running to get into a census. You know, we should speak aloud of this. And the last one, just to go and read at home, I guess, and ask Jeff and Neil about what it means later. Hebrews 2, 14 to 18. Since the children, that's us, have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil and free those who all lived their lives who were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants, the Jews, and us as well now. For this reason he had, had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, bringing us back to God. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We're going to talk a bit later in this series, about what it means to have a high priest like Jesus. Hebrews goes on to talk about how Jesus is a greater high priest than than others that have gone before. Uh, A high priest stood in the temple and and offered sacrifices so people could come back to God. And Hebrews goes on to describe how you don't need to worry about the fact they've got that, because we've got Jesus, who's a greater high priest. 
So to summarise, I guess, we're going to come, come to a close. The key words in this passage are, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? How many of you um, like football? Yeah. I love football, but my heart is broken because my team, Chelsea, were robbed. Robbed this week. Four penalties we should have been given, which would have won us the game, were ignored by the referee, changing the whole of the game. But, you know, this word ignored here, which is how should we escape if we ignore, is a really key word. Because to ignore doesn't mean that you kind of reject it outright. In tennis, you lose if you ignore the ball coming at you. In football, if a cross comes across and you just stand there ignoring it, you don't score the goal. For Christians, if we ignore this blatant fact that Jesus is the risen Lord, and we just kind of let it pass us by, there's a question, well, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This constantly turning back to being focused on this Jesus, who would be greater than the angels, but more than that, become like us to save us. How shall we escape? Two things, how shall we escape sin in our lives? If we ignore Jesus, there is no other way to be saved. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except in me, Jesus says. If we ignore such a great salvation, you're sitting here this, this evening and you know, you've stood at a distance looking at Jesus and you've heard about Jesus and you've heard people do talks saying you need to turn to Jesus and you've kind of gone, well, there's still a few things I need to work out first. You know, Claire wasn't my wife until she said I do. She could have ignored my proposal, but she had to do something about it. You must do something about this because how shall you escape if you ignore such a great salvation? And secondly, as Christians here together, how shall we escape from the kind of lives of just dull religious routine where we just go through the motions but have no joy in it if we ignore the fact daily that this Jesus, who is greater than the angels and, and an almighty saviour, if we ignore that in our lives and just focus on church or stuff or clubs or things, we won't be able to escape lives of religious routine. An action is needed. You know, hearing about it is not enough. Thinking about it is not enough. Hanging about church is not enough. Don't ignore this salvation. But the great news is right at the very end there. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. If you are struggling with doubt and worry and anxiety and sin, you have a saviour who's been through it and who is not unfamiliar with it. Whatever problem you face, because Jesus came to earth, you have a saviour who understands it. I know there's a lot there to take in and it's probably kind of hit you on the head. I think that the most important thing I want to try and say is those two doubts, you know, kind of come together in one thing. There is no greater way to live. This life is an adventure beyond measure. The God we worship is, is limitless in power and might. Why would you go any other way? Yeah, don't ignore it. Have an action. Father God, we thank you for sending Jesus. We thank you that he is our all-sufficient saviour. Father, I pray protect us from straying from that. Help us to cling to him daily. Help us not to ignore this great salvation. And whether we've been a Christian for many years, or if tonight is the night where we're going to come to you, Father, I pray, challenge us to keep our eyes fixed on you, the hope of glory, our sure thing for eternity. Father God, I just really pray, just challenge us to to spread the word, which is that Jesus is glorious, that there is nothing that's above him, that because you've put everything beneath his feet, there is nothing in our lives that should come above him. And so many people are living for things that will end in in just disaster and temporary living. Just, Father God, help us to be a people that have compassion for your world in the same way that you had for us when you sent Jesus. So, Lord, I pray you'd empower us to go and speak the truth in love this week and to live as people that have our eyes fixed on the cross.
In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.